We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast. We look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This episode, uh, we'll be talking the Burhalter Reina report, which is out. Pain meds, U.S. men's national team roster drop, UCL, CCL, Academy Awards, comeback stories, USA versus Mexico, the 2026 World Cup format, and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this? Uh, what are we looking at here? Wednesday, March 15th in the year 2023. Hello, my friend. I am doing well. How's the knee? It is good. Uh, for those that are watching, you can see that I am uh, remote today uh, after my uh, partial knee uh, replacement here that happened on Monday. It all went, <laughs> by all accounts, swimmingly, and uh, they saw what they needed to see, and they did what they needed to do. Um, I think I talked about this before, but uh, there's this, when they do a surgery like this, they um, they put a bunch of painkiller actually in during the surgery, and so you have this nice um, day or so where everything is great. And then that pain wall <laughs> vanishes very quickly and the real pain sets in. And so I'm, I'm in that uh, now, although I got prescriptions of all sorts of, uh, painkillers and they, they tell you, don't be afraid, take them. And, uh, they don't need to tell me twice. So I have taken them, but yeah, I mean, look, it, it hurts. Uh, but I was up and walking immediately. Uh, after when I came up uh, out of uh, out of surgery, they, they they get you on your feet, and you know since it's a titanium type of thing, and I was all jacked up anyway, um, it, it, it it's fine. You're not doing any damage because it's made to to go. So now it's obviously I have you know stitches and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's been good, and uh, I've been sleeping, so I appreciate it. Thank you for all the well wishes. Uh, that people have uh, sent, and uh, I am bionic. I am Iron Man, and I am uh, a metal god right now, and I am uh, ready to go. So I'm, I've already been on the bike and doing different stuff like that, so they get you right going uh, immediately nowadays, uh, along with the uh, medications that help. So uh, we're good. How you doing, Mossy? Doing well, yeah. You've been your typical trolley self on Twitter the last couple of days, so it seems like <laughs> things are back to normal post-surgery. 
Mossy, there, uh, there's, uh, I, I, there was a tweet um, where it was, I, I tweeted out two pictures, uh, x-ray pictures of what the, uh, the titanium looks like in my body. I have no idea where I got the pictures. I know I had told my doctor at one point that I wanted to get some pictures, but I have no recollection at all of where I got the actual pictures. And you can see me kind of in the reflection taking them. So obviously I was there. I have no recollection of tweeting it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, tweeting on uh, on painkillers is probably not the, the smartest thing to do. But there was so much stuff going on, Mossy, that I, I kind of had to get in there. I mean, while I was on the on the table, the stuff broke that we're going to talk about here. Did you watch anything uh, over the last couple of days? I did a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll do a couple of things here at the top and then sprinkle some other stuff in over the course of the podcast. Uh, I did late last week binge The Last of Us. I caught up in time for the finale, which I watched Sunday night. Uh, terrific show. Thank you for all the recommendations. I'm not a big dystopia guy, but it's the second year in a row that HBO has gotten me with one of these kinds of shows, Station Eleven last year and now The Last of Us. So very good. Two thumbs up for me. Also Sunday night, when I wasn't watching The Last of Us, I watched the Academy Awards. Everything, everywhere, all at once. One for Best Picture. We uh, released a podcast on Monday, which contained the segment in which I ranked my favorite movies of 2022. That segment was taped on Friday, so I did not know what was going to happen at the Oscars. That's why there were no references to it. Uh, but I left everything, everywhere, all at once out of my top six, and I don't regret doing so. I stand by the fact I did not think that was a great movie. I know Sean Sullivan's fiance Amanda, loved it. There's a joke in there somewhere about her having questionable taste in different facets of her life. Uh, but I, I honestly, I respect that movie. I enjoyed it, but I did not walk out of there when I watched it thinking that was an Academy Best Picture movie. And yet, alas, it won. So it's interesting that you say that, Mossy, because obviously I have a lot of downtime I'm literal downtime where I'm lying down and uh, looking for things to to watch. And I said, all right, well, like you, I saw the Academy Awards were on and then, you know, I'm following it on social media and everything everywhere all at once starts winning at winning everything. And look, they were up for awards, so it wasn't necessarily a surprise. But I like you. Uh, well, no, you had seen it. I had not seen it. And so I said, all right, what's all the fuss about here? And, you know, sometimes when something gets hyped up so much, it fails to live up to expectations. That is not the case as far as I'm concerned when it comes to uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, that is not the case because I could not even make it past, I'd say, 25 minutes. It was, I cannot believe, and I'm, I'm readily admitting that I did not watch the whole thing. But you know what? If you can't have me continue on after 25 minutes, and I know uh, I'm, I'm on meds and stuff like that, but I thought it was, it, 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 this is the Academy Award winning film. It made, it, I know it was like this Matrix-esque BS type, type of film. It, it, it held, it, there, was, there was nothing there to draw me in and I had to turn it off. I said, I, I, this is, I, I mean, even though I have so much time, I had to turn it off. So I, I agree with you. It's certainly not in my top five. It would not even be in my top 10. And I, ha I cannot fathom, unless something absolutely ridiculous later on happens in the movie, how that is possibly a Academy Award uh, winner. And I, you know, I continued to watch a little bit. And then I just said, this is just not happening. So that's it. Yeah, it was a choice that made nobody happy. The elitists like me wanted a movie like Tar to win, and then the populists like yourself wanted Top Gun Maverick 
to win. This was sort of this weird in-between. I think the Academy thought that by honoring a movie like this, they're being hip and more commercial and open-minded. But you know, you know what I mean? It was sort of this in-between because yep. it wasn't the phenomenon that Top Gun Maverick was, didn't have that sort of approval rating to it. And it wasn't, for my money, a artistically strong enough film to rival the likes of Tar. So made nobody well. happy. You know my feelings. Uh, Top Gun should have, uh, Maverick should have gotten everything. Uh, and uh, as far as Tar is concerned, just before we went to air here, somebody uh, tweeted me because they know I'm I'm laid up here and said that they, on your recommendation and everybody's recommendation, had watched Tar and they did not like it uh, at all. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe in a different time or a different headspace, uh, I would have uh, enjoyed everything everywhere uh, all at once more. So, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, you ready to light this candle, my friend? Let's do it. All right. We got all sorts of stuff. We're going to kick it off uh, right at the beginning here, because as I mentioned, so I'm I'm coming to in surgery here and I uh, eventually they they wheel me back to my room and they give me my phone, which was probably a mistake on their part and my part for that matter. And, you know, I start to see everything that's coming out and the report is finally out. And this is the report for it. For those that don't know, that was commissioned. Now, back at the beginning of the year by the United States Soccer Federation, an outside uh, entity that they hired to, I mean, investigate the situation involving Greg Berhalter, uh, Claudio Reyna, Danielle Reyna, Claudio's wife, um, and all of the stuff that went on in the communication. I, it comes comes to, we come to find out that there's not a whole lot new in terms of revelations when it comes to what, what happened, but... It had kind of gone out of sight, out of mind for a little bit and died down and people had moved on. And this just kind of brought it right back up. And I read the whole report, every single uh, word. And again, I was left with a feeling that this is just a, a shameful, sad, vindictive, childish and infuriating coda to the Greg Berhalter era. And it was just so unnecessary and irresponsible of all that were involved. And I think I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Ultimately, while the Reynas certainly are going to uh, have consequences to their actions, they're really going to get what they ultimately wanted. And that was Greg Berhalter, I think, not continuing to be the, the coach. And like I said, it was sad again, and I, and I got mad, and then I looked at it, and it, 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 at times you just turned around and said, this is ridiculous, and it, and it details the Reina's, uh, you know, consistent, like I said, indefensible behavior. And look, I'm a father, Mossy. I, I, can, I can empathize with parents protecting and supporting their kids. I would certainly do that within reason, but I think... The mistake that the rain has made, and it's clearly outlined here in this report, is thinking that their personal relationships entitled them to this special access and influence. And it just comes time and time again. Some of it is redacted um, in terms of the, the communications. Uh, but we come to find out that even during the World Cup, uh, there were problems with the Reina family. Uh, at the, uh, like I said, in Qatar. And families, for those that don't know, uh, the World Cup, usually what happens is a federation will organize a a, uh, a group trip. It's kind of everybody's together. And so it's wives and girlfriends and parents and grandparents and stuff, and everybody's kind of together. And, you know, there's, there's dynamics involved in that, but there is also a, a kumbaya type of experience. And outlined in this 
is that, uh, you know, the Reynas and the Reina family were certainly not happy about the way things that were going. But then it goes back into, like I said, a, a pattern of Claudio Reyna in particular reaching out and complaining. And, you know, all these texts are are laid out in uh, in front. And then Danielle Reyna. And it should be said that neither of them fully and Claudio didn't at all participate in this. And so we're only left with what this investigative group was able to ascertain from the people that they uh, talked to. And that was primarily Greg, his his wife, Greg Berhalter, his wife and other members of the family. And then obviously everybody that would talk. And so Greg Berhalter, I think, actually comes out uh, the best. But there are no winners in this, Mossy. It's it's again, it's just uh, I don't know. Did you read any of this, Mossy, or did you just move on to other stuff? I read some of the quotes that are out there. Claudia Reyna, not a fan of female referees. Yeah. So, OK, so hold on. So, so at one point, uh, Claudio Reyna, in in establishing a pattern of him, again, communicating, sending messages, sending texts and emails to people of power, importance, talking about his dissatisfaction with whatever it could be, you know, the playing time or in this case, like you mentioned, the fact that a U.S. national team game was having female referees. Now, that's look, that's a it's a it's a horrible thing and a bad thing for Claudio. But I I, I would say this, Mossy, sometimes I, I would I would love in this day and age to snap my fingers and everybody's personal communications were public. And to see what we would be as a as a culture, as a country and as and as and as individuals. And I'm sure that you and everybody that's listening, everybody's watching. I'm sure that you have, you know, group chats and group text chains that you are on that you wouldn't want out there in uh, in public. The problem is that, you know, when you send emails and when you do this and when you step over that line, they are going to be. And that's not to excuse Claudio uh, for, you know, saying for saying these things. But there also, I think, needs to be an understanding that we all have things that we have said uh, that we that we thought were private or are private, that if they if they came out would make us look maybe not uh, not great. You know, when it comes to, uh, you know, this situation here, you know, the the attention and the obvious piling on of the Reynas it has come and people are denouncing it. And that's that's fine. You know that you knew that that was going to happen. And I think that that's you know, that is that is fair. Everybody's going to want their uh, pound of flesh. And again, this is in no way am I excusing what uh, what the Reynas uh, what the Reynas did here. And ultimately, you know, and, and so uh, Danielle, too, talking to people. And it wasn't just to Greg. It wasn't just to Greg Berhalter, evidently, that the communications were going. And that's why they really, I think, in this document wanted to establish a pattern to show that this was Claudio and the Reynas ultimately using their influence, using their their connections and overstepping the bounds in uh, in many ways. As far as, you know, what happened 30 some years ago between Greg Berhalter and his now wife, then girlfriend back in college, it just goes it goes over the story again. Not a whole lot new with regards to the story. And again, the Burhalters were the ones that were the ones that were talking, that were forthright, that agreed to all these interviews and, you know, Burhalter family members and and all that. So, again, nobody wins in this. Everybody loses, including American soccer, uh, ultimately. But if there is any type of, I guess, not silver lining, but 
if anybody comes out in a more positive way, I think it's probably uh, Greg Berhalter. And, if, and not that he needed to be vindicated, but I think the report ultimately shows this is what happened. It was inappropriate from uh, from the Reinas. And, you know, Greg Berhalter takes full responsibility for that, you know, that TED talk that he thought was private. And they go uh, they go through all uh, through all of that. Um, I don't know what I don't know where this goes now, other than because he has been kind of absolved, Greg Berhalter, and that no um, no further action or punitive action uh, is recommended in this report. He is and continues to be now a, a guess, a quote unquote viable candidate for the head coaching job. But uh, I, I, I think it's hard now for the Federation uh, to continue on with him. But theoretically, he is still up for the job right now. I agree with you. They keep saying he remains a candidate, but he's not. There's no world in which a new GM looking to put his stamp on things, looking to signal a fresh start as his first act is going to rehire Greg Berhalter. So he's not going to be the coach when he otherwise might have been had none of this come to light. And Gio is going to remain on the team. So in that sense, you're right. The reign is win. But also to your point, I could see Greg Berhalter getting an MLS coaching job in 2023 before I could see Claudio Reyna getting a front office job. I might be wrong about that, but my sense is that he's been made really toxic by this whole situation. Uh, yeah, he has. And, you know, I think that, you know, I, I think I, 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 I tweeted out yesterday that that he made a mistake and we we all make mistakes. And that mistake, like I said, was overstepping the bounds. And there's there's no way they can put that genie back in the bottle. It is it is there. And toxic. I don't know. I think that that's that's a little strong. I think that ultimately humans we are we are forgiving. I did think that the um, that the statement that the Reinas put out through their agent uh, was a little weird. In that if they just owned it apologized this this will go away people will move on and i do think people are ultimately humans are forgiving and they would have moved on and yet in this statement they said that there's a whole other side to this story which kind of leaves it open for more for more chapters and also you know for those that were are saying that this all happened because it's enabled by the soccer federation and you know the nepotism and the old boys network and all that kind of stuff nobody enabled anything here cuz there are there are personal relationships there are histories there are connections that are accepted and even valued in every single industry and every single uh, business out there well the ones that involve humans and by the way that those can actually be beneficial but like like we said sometimes those boundaries get, get crossed as happened in this case and the action has and has to be taken and was taken. And, you know, every every industry that's populated with humans, they have all of those relationships and it's not going to change. You can say, oh, let's clean house and get a whole new group in. Well, that whole new group of humans is going to have those connections, those relationships and histories and experience with each other. So it, it should come as no surprise that many humans working in the American soccer industry actually came to it with a history from the game. And I'll finally, I'll leave you with this, Mossy. And you mentioned Gio Reyna. We're going to talk about him uh, later on. But Gio Reyna is not going anywhere. And nor should he. He is a great talent. He should not be punished for this. You know, his behavior, whatever. That's. I mean, I think that that is the smallest part of, uh, of all of this. And, you know, Claudio Reyna, yes, he is going to uh, suffer for this. 
and people will look at him differently. He is still, the way I see, he is still an American soccer legend. I think he's still knowledgeable and intelligent and passionate when it comes to the game. But, you know, as I said, he and his wife made a really big mistake, like we all do, and they should have known better. And there are there are no winners in all of this. And again, we take we take a step back and an unnecessary step back. So here's to, you know, hopefully onward and upward into 2026, which is going to arguably be the most important moment in soccer in the last century. And we need all guns blazing. We don't need any type of baggage. We need to be focused on that going forward. And this does not help. Anything else, Mossy? Should we transition to the U.S. national team on the field? Yes, yes, because we just teased it there. And I'm glad that we can talk about the, you know, the soccer on the field and the players on the field. So they have two Nations League games coming up in this uh, March window. They will be home to El Salvador and away to Grenada. They announced today a 24-player roster for those two games. Uh, it includes Gio Reyna, among lots of other big names. Uh, we can take a look at the roster right here. Uh, what are your overall thoughts? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's such a weird moment to be in when it comes to the U.S. men's national team because you have a, you know, interim coach. You don't have a general manager. You don't have a sporting director. And these are massive positions that ultimately are going to have a say. And I know that the United States Soccer Federation will tell me that, you know, we have a, a system in place and everything is going on and it doesn't mean that we can't scout and we can still move ahead. But th that's that's not true. We are in a a moment of stasis right now when it comes to our men's national. And we've been here before, you know, after the uh, after the failure of last World Cup, we waited a while. And I'm not saying that th that this wait can't produce quality. But, you know, I look at the, uh, you know, the players that are uh, that are coming in for these games, these uh, these Nations League games, which, by the way, are important in terms of, you know, getting to the Nations League final, uh, qualifying for the Gold, Gold Cup, all that. And. I mean, not for nothing, but also seeing some of these players. I think what's interesting is, you know, the Giorena story is going to continue to be a story and that he is in. I don't think it should be a surprise, but it's going to be an interesting uh, dynamic there. Um, then you have guys like Daryl DK, guys like Ricardo Pepe, uh, those types of players. And then the whole dual national thing, uh, feather in the cap of uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the powers that be, uh, including, you know, the Greg Berhalter and Brian McBride and Ernie Stewart era. Uh, Alex Andejas, who is uh, who has decided to play uh, with the national team and that kind of stuff. So that's good. And then, you know, a guy like Zach Steffen, who surprisingly was not on the team back in uh, goalkeeper wise. I think there's only one MLS player here uh, when it comes to the return of Miles Robinson. And that's wonderful to see because uh, it seems so long ago. But the reality is that he was at least penciled in as a starter until he had that awful injury at the, at the worst possible time. So to see him not only back playing, but back in the national team, I think that's going to uh, be fun. And then a lot of the usual suspects, uh, we find out today that Tyler Adams uh, has a hamstring injury, so he will be missing the Leeds game and missing this camp. So that's not good uh, going forward, but there's still plenty of talent here when it comes to uh, Christian Pulisic. And a lot of the usual suspects too, Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa, uh, Tim Ream back in uh, back in camp, Serginho Dest, all of these. So not a, not a lot of surprises, but it it would it would be interesting to see 
what if Greg Berhalter was still the coach, what this roster would look like? What do you think, Mossy, the differences would be if Greg Berhalter was still the coach? Well, first off, the Grenada game is first and then El Salvador. I think I said it the other way around. Okay. Uh, fr- from a roster composition standpoint, what jumps out at me is there's no six in the midfield with Tyler Adams being injured and Kellen Acosta not called in. You look at all these midfielders, Aronson, Johnny Cardoso, who I watch a lot with Internacional in Brazil. He's not a six. He plays as more of an eight. Uh, Luca De La Torre, Wesson McKinney, Eunice Musa, Alan Senora. So I'm interested to see how the midfield shapes up. Who's going to be the deepest guy playing that sort of pivot role or is there going to be that sort of player? So that that's kind of interesting to me. I mean, I don't think against El Salvador and Grenada, that's that big a deal. But from a standpoint of just big picture moving forward, um, I, I want to see if one of these players demonstrates an ability to play at that position and then that, they become part of that mix moving forward. Um, and then, yeah, you mentioned DK and Pepe, two players who at different points in the last cycle, looked like they were going to be the saviors at that center forward position. And neither one ended up going to the World Cup, which was kind of crazy. And now here they are again. And you you wonder if one of them does put it all together at the international level and does step up and does finally solve that center forward riddle. Obviously, U.S. fans are waiting on the Balogun decision. A lot of people think he would ultimately be the savior if he chooses to play for the U.S. But in the meantime, you can't count on that because he could choose to go a different way with it. So you'd love to see one of these guys emerge. And keep in mind, we also have... Uh, the U.S. Mexico coming up in the in the future here. So there are there are other games. There are going to be other rosters. There's a whole another collection of players. And you know, interim coach Anthony Hudson said as much in his uh, introductory uh, press conference. And so this is obviously the group right now. But in no way is this is this set. But I, I do think you know, in talking about Anthony Hudson in this interim capacity, I wonder how much of because, you know, Greg Berhalter and co. would have talked about their plans post-World Cup and what they were going to do and who they would be calling in and who's completely out of the picture and who's not uh, and, who, and who they want to bring back into the picture and how much this is a reflection on the continuing work of Greg Berhalter or a new direction of Anthony Hudson, because we all know, Mossy, that Assistant coaches, they have sometimes their own ideas. That's not a bad thing. You know, you want people to be able to bounce ideas off of. And they sometimes have conflicting ideas with the head coach. And so being given the, you know, the wheel here of the national team, is he doing what the plan was? Or is he going and developing a whole new plan because he didn't like the plan or he is hoping... (laughs) that this new plan of his is going to put him in pole position. I mean, I don't think that there's any chance that he's ultimately uh, getting hired, but we've seen times before where coaches come in and they are, you know, there's a newfound new sense of, uh, of of opportunity and wonder, and they change things that they have seen that have not gone well in the past, and they start to look really, uh, really, really good. Now, like you mentioned, the, the opposition isn't great in this camp, but... I think we will be able to learn some things. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see Daryl DK back. Um, I'm excited to see Ricardo Pepe. I'm excited to see some of these guys that didn't get their chance in the World Cup. They might have a chip on their shoulder. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And then we talked so much about this generation that we saw in Qatar in 2022. But we all it was always framed as, and think of what they're going to be in 26. Well, 
this is what's happening now. And so this is where they have to start to progress. And we have to see that forward motion towards 2026 for a lot of the, some of the now their usual suspects, even though that they're young, but they will be coming into their into their prime 2026. Uh, you mentioned the Mexico game in April. That will be outside of FIFA date. So that's going to be largely an MLS squad. So that might be the reason why this was almost all European. They're essentially splitting it up. Although it does beg the question, why is Miles Robinson part of this group? Why wouldn't you just save him with all the other MLS players for the Mexico game in, in April? I don't, I don't know what the plan is there. Uh, but uh, speaking of Mexico, uh, Zendejas, uh, there's some debate over how impactful he's going to be for the U.S. Uh, now, there's a feeling that maybe there were some elements of this story that made him seem more important than he is, but he is undoubtedly a good player, so you're adding another good player to the mix. And from a PR standpoint, this is a delicious victory for the U.S. because this is a kid who's starring in Liga MX for Mexico's biggest club, Club America, and who Mexico wanted. They could say whatever they want about it now, but they forfeited games at multiple age levels as they were calling him up because they were trying to entice him to pick Mexico. In the end, he picks the United States. So uh, this is a very satisfying recruitment victory for the U.S., which doesn't have a coach, GM, or sporting director right now, and yet this kid still picked the U.S. right now. Well, you know, I mean, it goes back to, uh, and if you haven't listened to it, really check out our uh, our interview with Brendan Hunt. And you know, some of the some of the quotes that he gave riled up the uh, the folks out there, including him talking about Greg Berhalter and. You know, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically he said Greg Berhalter did everything that was asked of him. Well, one of the things that was asked of him and, and obviously Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride was, you know, to go out there and to recruit. And I do think that, you know, you can not like Greg Berhalter for this or that reason. But in terms of the dual nationals that have been been wooed, this is another feather in the cap. And this is part of being a good coach. This is part of being a good you know, leader, administrator within a federation right now. And if you if you can't do it, then you're leaving stuff, uh, stuff on the table. So, uh, you know, again, this is uh, this is a good thing for whoever ultimately takes uh, takes over this team. And it's fun because it's it's a statement and it's a message out there to others that, you know, you could go this way and go this way. And what what do we have to offer? And I, it makes me it makes me cringe a little bit having to sell basically America, um, but it's kind of what you have to do. And I, I, I want you to want to play for America because it's America. And, but I'm not, I'm not naive. I, I get it that you have to look at it and say, it's not just that, there's all of these different opportunities that come with it. And obviously whatever was laid out in front of him resonated and the experience of being in camp, being around this this team and what it is or maybe what it could be leading up to 2026. Well, that's it. Listen, let's take a, a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into, as I mentioned, the uh, Champions League and the CONCACAF Champions League and all sorts of stuff that's going on. Don't go anywhere. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. 
Okay, welcome back. Let's take a little uh, trip around Champions League, both uh, UEFA Champions League and CONCACAF Champions League. Let's start out with uh, CONCACAF Champions League. Remember last week, Mossy, when uh, we did that uh, austin Violette game and the incredible result that the uh, the guys uh, from Haiti pulled out in the Dominican Republic uh, because they can't play in Haiti against Austin FC? 3-0. They were bringing it back to Texas. I think a lot of us, including myself and uh, Keith Costigan, who uh, who called the game, thought that, you know, Austin would find a way to score goals, especially with all of the challenges. Well, we come to find out that Violette uh, had 11 field players and three bench players, uh, and they had to just get whatever they could get and hold on for dear life. And that's exactly what they did. And congratulations to Violette, because this is a historic type of win. They come out uh, with a 3-2 to aggregate win. They held Austin at home to only two goals, and it was a barrage. Constantly under pressure, VAR reviews that went their way, so the soccer gods were smiling on them. Uh, opportunity after opportunity, great goalkeeping, and they held on, and they win 3-2, to and they beat, in a home and away, Austin in CONCACAF Champions League, and they go on. And even if they lose in the next round, this is historic, and this deserves incredible uh, praise for what they did, especially with all of the challenges that they had just actually fielding a team and getting to the United States. From an Austin perspective, their first time in CONCACAF Champions League, this was an embarrassing failure. And Austin has no one to blame but but themselves. Josh Wolf and company uh, really lost it probably in that first leg, uh, even with the talent that they had. And it's it's on them and it's a wasted opportunity. And it makes me yeah, it makes me it makes me angry because they're a better team and they had two opportunities to show that against a vastly inferior uh, opponent and they didn't do it and they wasted. That's what it is. What's what it comes down to. It was a uh, it was a waste. Philadelphia had no problems. Uh, they went through and uh, 4-0 aggregate against Alianza. We are recording this on. Wednesday, Orlando plays against Tigres later on tonight. Uh, LAFC plays against Alajuense, and Vancouver is about to win because they did their job the first uh, the uh, the first game uh, against España, and they're going to find a way to get a result uh, that's going on right now. So Vancouver's going through, Philadelphia's going through, and then we'll see if Orlando and LAFC can uh, finish it up here. And Austin, you are going home as far as the American-Canadian uh, MLS teams are in uh, CONCACAF Champions League. Anything stand out to you, Mossy, CONCACAF Champions League-wise? On Austin, this has to be one of the most embarrassing eliminations by an MLS team in CCL history. I mean, you laid it all out. Uh, when you consider the circumstances surrounding this tie, Violette had not played a competitive match in ages because the Haitian League was shut down. They couldn't even play in Haiti in the first leg. They had to play in the Dominican Republic. And they almost had to forfeit the return leg because they couldn't get enough visas for all their players. The only reason they were able to field the team is because they were basically taking people off the street and were able to cobble together a lineup somehow and go down there and only lose 2-0. I thought that game was going to be 6-0. I cannot believe that Austin didn't turn this around facing a team under those circumstances. So yeah, this is absolutely mind-boggling on Austin's part. They crash out. And on the Violette thing... Because they advanced, it, nobody's going to harp on this too much, but how can a team enter a competition and find themselves in that position where they win the first leg 3-0 and then they almost had to forfeit the second leg? You know, there's good wacky and bad wacky with CCL. A dog running on the field, that's good wacky. 
this Violette situation was bad wacky. CONCACAF, I don't know, there had to be some way for them to get out ahead of this situation and try to prevent this. Imagine what a bad look that would have been if Violette had had to forfeit this return leg after winning the first game 3-0. Yeah, but okay, it's easy to say. And this we, we have this conversation when it comes to standards, you know, uh, minimum standards. And uh, a lot of people have the conversation when it comes to uh, the sanctioning of leagues and stuff like that. Because in order to do that, Mossy, if let, let's say CONCACAF recognized it early and said, okay, this is a problem. If they can't solve it, then what is the solution? That Violet can't play? There, there's no recourse for them to get the U.S. government to grant temporary visas or something. I don't no, know. That's I, way I above know. my Listen, I, I know it sounds, it sounds simple, but at, at one point, you know, there's, if you can't get it done, you are left with a situation. You can't just say, well, just solve it. But if they can't solve it, then you have to turn around and say, all right, the minimum standards for this to happen are you have to be able to get visas. You have to be able to travel to your opponent's country. And if you can't, then I'm sorry you can't participate because you want to head it off at the pass. I know you want, you, you know, you want to have this all sorted out. And ideally, that's what you want. But if you can't get those things sorted out, then what you have to do is say, no, it's not going to happen because we're going to avoid the embarrassment later on that is this team that can't uh, can't do it. I'm not I, I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer to this. I just think it's it's easy to say, well, CONCACAF. Sort it, uh, sort it out. But it, it's beyond CONCACAF. It's political. It's bureau- bureaucracy. It's all those other things. And and to your point, these these entities, whether it's CONCACAF or the federations, you should get ahead of this, and you should have people whose job specifically it is to recognize this and to deal with this and head it off the uh, off at the pass. But it's not just as simple as saying, "Well, this is a bad look, and it should have been avoided." Well. What would, what would it look like if you had gone to Violette and said, no, you, you can't play because we're not sure you can get into the U.S. and we're, our hands are tied uh, with this? And then we wouldn't, wouldn't have had this game. We wouldn't have this, uh, this incredible result. Anyway, shall we move on to uh, UCL? Yes, the quarterfinals are set. Four teams moved on this week. The big story, Manchester City advanced in emphatic fashion, a 7-0 second leg home win over Leipzig. Erlen Holland with... Five goals, equaling a UCL single-season record, single-game record previously set by Lionel Messi and Luis Adriano, this Brazilian who did it for Shakhtar. This was a goal-poaching clinic when you consider the fact that none of his goals were assisted. It wasn't like anybody laid it on for him. Uh, The first one was a penalty, a pretty dodgy penalty, but he stepped up and made it, which has been an issue for Manchester City the last couple of years. So the fact that they have a good penalty kick taker now is noteworthy. And then the other four were all scrappy rebounds, goal mouth scrambles, just having that innate sense of being in the right place at the right time in the box and ready to finish. Uh, So it was a pretty remarkable performance from him. What did you make of it? Uh, that is the one game that I didn't see, Mossy. So I'm going to take your uh, word for it. I, you know, I obviously saw the scoreline and you know the the headline with Erlen Holland. So uh, you know, I was I was I'll be honest with you, I was passed out <laughs> during that uh, during that one. But I did see uh, you know today's games and everything. But I mean, this isn't just some small team that he did this against. And I know Man City is you know arguably the best team in the world, and he's arguably the best striker striker in the world. So. Was this just one of those days where everything that Man City touched uh, turned to gold and everything that Leipzig did did, did not turn to gold and certainly everything that uh, Erlen Holland touched uh, turned to gold? Or was this just someone showing why he is one of the great 
finishers in the game right now and just eats and breathes scoring goals and just is in a beautiful way incredibly greedy every single time he gets out on the field. Yeah, like I said, City were all over them, but it wasn't these silky smooth goals that we've grown accustomed to seeing from them. It was real goal poacher goals, offset pieces, rebounds, the ball pinging around in the box and then him getting a boot on it. So I think he really showed his goal poacher instincts. Now, there was some controversy here. Uh, he had five goals fairly early in the second half, and then Pep took him off around the 60th minute. Uh, like I said, he equaled the UCL single game record. One more goal he would have broken, and he wanted to go for it. He made that clear after the match. So some people have been debating. What do you think about that? Pep taking him off at that point. Bear in mind, the the tie was finished. So looking at it the other way, imagine if he keeps him on in a tie that they're winning up by six or seven goals and he pulls a hamstring and he's out a month, then Pep would be criticized for that. So he almost can't win here. But yeah. it was somewhat surprising that he took him off when he did. I mean, we've seen this before in soccer, right, where where there's this moment and this crazy dynamic of a coach taking a player off that wants to stay on and score more goals. And there's it's a little performative. Uh, and so and and it, and ultimately it ends up being innocuous. It's not like, you know, you can afford to to look like, oh, I want to stay on. I want to score, uh, score a bunch of goals and any type of anger that you're showing. Yeah, because you're a goal scorer and goal scorers are greedy in a good way and you need to be greedy. And so a lot of people like to see it. But like like I said, I think it's it's much more ultimately for for the cameras when uh, when those types of uh, things happen. And, you know, if you're a coach, you want your players to be angry when they come off the field. And if you're if you're a coach of a goal scorer in this case, yeah, you want them to want more and leave them kind of uh, wanting more. But. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that big, uh, that uh, that big a deal. And you know, they're going to have some much bigger and much more difficult games here going uh, going forward when we get down to the nitty gritty here, which we are with the final eight. Uh, a couple of more quick UCL notes: Real Madrid finished off Liverpool. Their ownage of Liverpool in recent years has been incredible. They beat them in the eighteen and twenty two finals, in the quarterfinals in twenty one, and now the round of sixteen and twenty three. So Liverpool, I mean, that that is their kryptonite. They they cannot hang with Real Madrid. Uh, so the champs move on, and Inter and Napoli both moved on this week. Serie A is having a moment right now. Three right? teams, three teams in the UCL quarterfinals for the first time since two thousand six. None of them, Napoli, Inter Milan, or AC Milan, conceded a goal in the round of sixteen. So this is turning into a big season for Italian football. Yeah, I mean. I I don't know if this is just, you know, some some anomaly here, but Syria needs good things like this. And so this is good. But I'm 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 a little reticent to say that this is Syria back in its in well, certainly not in its past glory, but this is certainly a a good trend. And when it comes to someone like Napoli, I think there's, you know, legitimate cause to look at them as a potential winner. And and if that were to happen, not just for Syria, but for for Napoli, that would be yeah, that would be uh, that would be pretty uh, pretty incredible, and you know Napoli was so much better than than Frankfurt, and uh, I mean Osimhen is is just insanely good, and he's not going to stay because <laughs> somebody is going to buy him and he's going to go on. But this is a fun team to watch. This is a team that believes that they can win, and this is a team that a lot of people right now looking at the field can say uh, they can beat anybody. Yeah, the draw is Friday. It will lay out both the quarterfinals and the semifinal matchups who would play who in that round. So we essentially know the bracket the rest of the way on Friday. So can't wait for that. And we'll we'll talk about that on our 
Monday pod and dissect the matchups. Uh, in terms of this upcoming weekend, some great games, both in MLS and in Europe. In MLS, the Fox game is a terrific one. The Seattle Sounders hosting LAFC. These look early on to be the two best teams in the West for me. So this is quite the showdown. What are you expecting out of this one? Well, I, I agree with you that, I mean, Seattle looks completely different. And I think it's understandable given, you know, the players that they have back, the kind of um, uh, leaving of last year, as good as it was from a title perspective, winning the Champions League, it was also equally as bad from an MLS perspective and kind of getting rid of that that part and coming back and saying you need to reestablish yourself. And I think very quickly they have shown that they are one of the elites here. And LAFC is absolutely. And so mm, statement game for Seattle. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if they are truly different than last year, this would go a long way to convincing, but I'm, I'm already convinced that this is going to be a much better year and much more successful. And I guess much more, for lack of a better word, normal year for Seattle, which for them, normal is doing really, really well. So I can't wait for that. That's uh, that's our Fox game, right? Oh, yes. Nice. Correct. Yes. What else we got? In the Premier League, on the American front, uh, Leeds United with a massive game as they look to climb out of the relegation <sighs> zone. They are away to Wolves. Oof. Brutal. Brutal. And, and then suddenly surging Chelsea who have won three straight in all competitions, home to Everton, so a great chance to make it four in a row. Christian Pulisic, not that big a factor, but nevertheless, he he's comes healthy, back, and, and all of a sudden, uh, Chelsea turning it around. He, he's healthy, and that's uh, you know that's a good thing. We just mentioned he was uh, named to the uh, roster for the uh, for the U.S. and you know the more opportunity he gets and is healthy and is whether it's on the bench or on the field um that's a good thing considering that we you know he's been out for uh for so long so you think they're surging what are they a tenth now <laughs> per, 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 perhaps not reflected yet in the table but they've been playing better of late all right all right so uh mossy believes in chelsea that they are going to do some uh some good things uh what I, else I, i'm going to add a bonus game here much to sean sullivan's chagrin okay uh, in the in the fa cup quarterfinals manchester united face fulham no casemiro he is suspended because of a red card he picked up last time out against southampton a red card that engendered a lot of sympathy from people but not yourself uh, I saw you tweeting about this. You did not understand why anybody would feel sorry for Casemiro after this episode. Oh, did we not talk about this? Huh, interesting. I, I've, I've lost track of time. Yeah, I, I didn't, you know, and, and this wasn't, I think I responded to uh, our friend Men and Blazers um, who, you know, were talking about the the humanity of, of that moment and Casemiro crying and people on both sides, you know, putting their arm around his shoulder. And so I was just saying, are, are we feeling bad for one of the great players in the world who has played at the highest level, understands the game, certainly isn't some novice, rookie, inexperienced type of player who went in for a questionable challenge. And you can say, oh, you know, he hit the ball first and all that. that. That doesn't matter if you hit the ball first. And oh, he rolled over the ball. Yeah, he rolled over the ball because he decided in that moment to leave his feet. Now, part of I love Casemiro. I want Casemiro on my team. I want him on the field. I just didn't think that just because a player cries or shows remorse that that we are supposed to uh, <laughs> treat treat him differently. <laughs> so I don't know, and and that wasn't necessarily suggested. I just think, yeah, like I said, it was just a little a little weird. He made a decision. 
He it was the wrong decision and he got uh, and he got punished and he should know better. And so that he is going off in tears is through no fault of anybody but his own. And it's a shame because he's played so well, but all the yeah. games he's going to miss through suspension, that's a blight on his season. That's going to be part of the narrative. So suddenly this season doesn't look as impressive for him because he's really hurt his team by picking up these two red cards in quick succession here. Well, I still think it's a it, it's a good pickup. And, you know, he plays the way that he plays and people should, you know, should know that. And, you know, there's also the, and it's a longer conversation, we're not going to get into it now, but the ability to understand the league and the culture that you're playing in and, you know, something might apply here that doesn't apply here. But I didn't think it was even a question about uh, about the red card. A lot of people felt that it shouldn't shouldn't have been a red card, uh, red card at all. And then the whole crying thing, whatever. He'll be fine. I love him. Great player. But, you know, he's going to pay the price for his decisions that he made. In Germany, uh, Dortmund hosts Cologne, Bayern away to Leverkusen. Bayern right now have a two-point lead. Dortmund finally blinked in the last round. They were held to a draw by Schalke. Keep in mind, this is the last round of games before their head-to-head matchup on April 1st. You have these games and the international break, and then first round coming out of the international break, it'll be Bayern hosting Dortmund. So important that Dortmund don't fall any further back than they already are. They need to take care of business in their game here and go into that showdown only two points back. I mean, that's the game that the, the Bayern Dortmund game is going to decide the Bundesliga title ultimately. Um, is that in uh, Munich or where is that? Do we know? Munich. Munich. It, oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, to your point, Dortmund can't mess up. And ultimately, that's the, you know, the game coming out of the international break. That's going to be the one to watch. And that's ultimately, I think, what's going to decide this, uh, this year or this season. In Spain, we have a Clasico this weekend Barcelona hosting Real Madrid. In La Liga, the gap is nine points. So this is essentially a match point for Barcelona. If they win this game, it's over. Even a draw, it's probably over. Real Madrid have to win this game to maintain, I think, any realistic hopes of winning La Liga. That would knock it down to six, and they would have the head-to-head tiebreaker, which is the first tiebreaker in Spain. So at that point, they would still feel like they're alive. Interestingly enough, this game being played against the backdrop of this Barcelona scandal, which is starting to gain some momentum. The fact that over a period of many years, they were paying this company that was owned by one of the heads of refereeing in La Liga. What's Mm. funny about this situation is all the other La Liga clubs have come out and expressed outrage. The one team that's been reluctant to do so is Real Madrid. Why? Because this scandal could take down Barcelona's president, Laporta, and Real Madrid's president, Florentino Perez, doesn't want that because Laporta's his big ally in the Super League deal. So so he's been kind of reluctant to say anything. Finally, there was so much criticism from the Madrid fans in the media. Why aren't you saying anything about this? That Real Madrid did put out a statement uh, admonishing Barcelona for what they did, but it was kind of tepid. Like You could tell they don't want to go in like two studs up here on Barcelona when you'd think they'd be the club that would could, could make the most hay out of this because it's their chief rival. And yet, because of the Super League deal, it, it's, it's kind of gotten complicated oh my goodness oh my <laughs> goodness uh, all right well you know plenty plenty of drama uh going forward and you know you keep your uh friends close and your enemies closer right uh Correct. what else Mossy, anything else last last thing uh i asked for this game in the rundown uh syria showdown juventus uh facing inter this weekend uh that's actually inter hosting juventus um Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, Paul Pogba's status is unclear for this game. 
And this is kind of a funny story if you've been following it. I mean, I don't want to make light of his plight, but he picked up a knee injury in the preseason, uh, did not want to have surgery because he was still holding out hope of being back for the World Cup. And then only when he realized he wasn't going to be back for the World Cup, he did have surgery. So he ended up missing most of the season. He only came back a couple of weeks ago, played in a couple of games as a sub, a grand total of 35 minutes, then got himself suspended for a match for disciplinary reasons for showing up late to training the day before, and then picked up a muscle injury and is out again and has missed a couple of games in a row and might be out for this Inter game. So what a fall from grace for Paul Pogba. It might be time to pack it up in Europe and come to MLS already. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, well, so, but why, why would coming to MLS change who he is? He, you know, he, he looks for drama. He looks for conflict. And if it's not there, he'll create it himself. And yeah, I mean, I, my, my patience wears thin for, you know, for, for people that, you know, can't even do the basics. And you know, I, I hope that he's healthy because he is an incredible talent. But, you know, this has not quite a Balotelli, uh, you know, level of drama. But still, there always seems to be something that is going on, either on, uh, on or off the field. And the reason why people care about you ultimately is kicking the ball. And the more things that you do to not kick the ball, the less and less people will care about you. So... I don't know. I hope I hope he gets I hope he's healthy and I hope he's on the field and doing what makes him great. And he can be great. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more. Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the uh, show where you send in your questions. You can either send them in on all the social media platforms out there. Keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi, or you can call in on our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. Mossy, what do the folks uh, want today? A couple of voicemails. Let's hear the first one right now. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Matt from Colorado. Fellow Ginger here calling in to wish Alexi Lawless, uh, you know, a successful surgery and a good start for his recovery. Hope there's no um, hiccups or anything going on for you, Alexi. In the spirit of that, I'm wondering, what is your guy's favorite or biggest, you know, uh, injury recovery comeback that you've seen in the world of soccer? I look at Steve Zakawani in MLS, who had a great story, but maybe not a good comeback in terms of what he did on the field elsewhere globally. Recently, you know, I look at a Christian Erickson with the heart issue that he had at the Euros. I look at Petter Cech with uh, the skull fracture that he had, um, you know, a number of years ago. What's your favorite, what's your best injury recovery that you've seen on a soccer field and a player coming back and overcoming that injury? Thank you. Love the show. Get well, Alexi. Okay. Matt from Colorado. Thank you. That's interesting. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, and you mentioned some really good ones and Erickson. I mean, that's, that, that is just an amazing, it's an amazing story. And the arc of it and then having that moment, uh, you know, just you, you 
you you feel thankful and then you feel just good seeing that. And it's that's hard to top something something like that because it was just so visual. Um and there was, you know, a worldwide reaction because it was on national television. And then to see him get back and do on the field, which was, you know, the uh, the scene of, uh, you know, the, the you know, the horrific collapse that he had. That was that was wonderful. When I think of, of others out there. Well, first off, from a sporting perspective, and Mossy, you might uh, you might you might have something to add here. Like. Some of the big ones coming back, Tiger Woods, and I'm not a, I'm a golf fan, but when Tiger Woods returned, I mean, even that was like there was emotion and that was kind of cool to see. I mean, as as vilified as Lance Armstrong is, you know, his comeback was pretty incredible from a just a, a physical perspective to, to do what he did. Um, you know, the Jordan <laughs> and we've talked about the documentary and everything and, you know, him coming back. Um, and then like George Foreman from a boxing perspective, when it comes to soccer, though, I mean, I, I, I was talking the other day with uh, with our good friend, um, Stu Holden. And I know, you know, he, he's not at the, <laughs> at the level of some of the people that we are uh, we are talking about. But, you know, this is a guy that had, I think, by last count. Over, you know, over the course of his career and now post-career, he's had like 14 surgeries. And, you know, he had, you know, he had his leg broken um, twice and he rushed to come back to the World Cup. And if you ever get a chance to hear Stu talk about uh, that whole process, uh, it's an incredible story. At times, it's incredibly sad because... You know, Stu Holden um, was and still is because he still runs around a little bit, an incredible soccer player. And I never had a chance, obviously, to play with him because I'm older than him. But I did get a chance over the last few years uh, or before we both had our knee replacements um, to play pickup soccer with him. And you, when you're close to somebody and playing in a game, you you can see where there is excellence and talent and you know, Stu, had he not had all of his injuries, I mean, the, the, the sky was the limit. And that's not to, you know, to bring him down or anything like that, because, you know, he's really actually very philosophical about the times that he got knocked down, what he learned from that and the work that went into him getting better and coming back. And that, you know, he'll tell you point blank that he learned much more during those difficult times and during those injuries than he did when everything was great and everything was uh, and and he was uh, and he was healthy. And so I think that he is a wonderful comeback story. And it's not like he came back and won the World Cup or came back and did uh, incredible things. But just to come back from multiple serious injuries and to get back on the field and to do what uh, do what he loved to do, you know, that one. That one certainly springs to mind. And like I said, maybe we'll get uh, Stu on again and, you know, he can tell us that story because it's an, it's an incredible ride. Obviously, it affects him physically, but, you know, it affects you emotionally and the people that you're with, his wife and everybody else that has to kind of go through all of that. And when it's taken away from you and you either realize how much you miss it um, or you recognize that you're going to do anything and everything to get back 
and then the not knowing if you're going to be good. I mean, that's what a comeback ultimately is. It's not even necessarily that final moment of success. It's all of the work that goes into sometimes only attempting. But if you do succeed of getting back to doing what you love to do in any sport, and it doesn't always happen for uh, for everyone. And, you know, Stu's a, a wonderful example of, of persever- perseverance, uh, belief in oneself, uh, a a positive attitude and the incredible healing effects uh, and you know, almost medicinal effects that believing in yourself and being positive, even at a time where you have every right not to be, how much it can impact you. So there's, you know, there's those are the things that uh, that come to mind. The other ones that I mentioned, you know, in other sports were much more from a, a competitive standpoint and, and legends of the games kind of coming back. But there's so many other comeback stories out there that you hear of uh, that you don't hear of. And, you know, that we have a colleague like uh, Stu Holden that has, I think, an incredible story, an incredible comeback story in terms of the injuries and everything that he went through and how it has shaped him and shaped him not just as a soccer player, but more importantly, as a uh, as a person. It's pretty incredible. And, you know, I'm sitting here with a, <laughs> a knee replacement, but the stuff that he went through is a whole nother level. And it, it knocks you down physically. Like I said, it knocks you down mentally. And it can, for some, you, you never get back up. But a guy like Stu, he always got back up. And uh, I got a lot of uh, respect for people uh, that do it because it's not always easy. And that self-motivation is not always easy. Uh, Mossy, anything come to mind? Are you done talking about Stu? Yeah, we're done with talking about Stu. Uh, the greatest comeback in soccer history is the Brazilian Ronaldo, who had a seizure before the 98 World Cup final, almost died, and then had horrific knee injuries over the subsequent four years, was told by some doctors he might never walk again, much less play professional soccer, and came back just in time for the 2002 World Cup, scored eight goals, including two in the final against Germany to lead Brazil to... The title, probably the happiest day of my life when Brazil won that World <laughs> Cup because he's my favorite player. And if I get married and have kids, that'll still be the happiest day of my life. Oh, my goodness. Why Why is it not surprising that it comes back to Brazil? Uh, all right. Well, that's a good one, actually. That's a good one uh, uh, to end. So thank you to, uh, what, uh, let's, let's see, what was his name there? Matt from Colorado. Thanks, Matt. Uh, anything else, Mossy? Yeah, one more voicemail. Let's take a listen. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Bill from Indiana here. Quick comment, question. Just on the U.S.-Mexico rivalry, I know um, whenever U.S. and Mexico play each other in the U.S. and the the crowd always looks like it favors Mexico, I know some people claim that that's something that's lacking or at fault with U.S. soccer's fan base. Uh, But I was watching the World Baseball Classic on Fox yesterday, uh, the USA playing Mexico, and even in you know, again, the game was in Phoenix and Arizona, and even in baseball, you could definitely tell that the Mexican fans outnumbered uh, the U.S. fans. And so it makes me think, coming back to U.S. soccer, that it's nothing to do necessarily with what's what's lacking with U.S. soccer fandom, more so the fact that we just live in a very unique country with people of all different backgrounds and people that are proud of their, their heritage and, and their ancestry, where they're from. Uh, so I just wanted to get your take on that and maybe um, what your experience was like as a U.S. player playing uh, the Mexico uh, in the U.S. So thanks and uh, hope your surgery went well and you're feeling better. All right. Bye. All right. Uh, thank you, Bill from Indiana. And thank you for the uh, 
yes, the surgery did well, well, and I'm feeling better. And, and thanks to Matt before also for uh, for mentioning that. So thanks to everybody. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the U.S.-Mexico, it's funny you mentioned the uh, the baseball because uh, we were broadcasting on Fox and I was you know watching it and because uh, I was interested to see how it would translate. You know, the U.S.-Mexico rivalry, we talk about it often and it's, I think, the greatest rivalry in uh in international sports um, and in the international game, I know, arguably for, for, for people out there, but what it has turned into with our connections, with our proximity, um, with our history, all of that kind of stuff uh, between us, us in Mexico. But, um, you know, to is uh, to Bill's point, uh, if it's U.S. Mexico because of that connection, it doesn't matter whether it's soccer or in this case, baseball or anything else. Uh, Mexican fans or fans of Mexico, uh, they might be Americans that live in the United States, are going to come out. And long ago, it 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 irritated me, but it doesn't irritate me anymore. I, I always then I, I, I shifted to looking at it as a challenge to win them on the side of, you know, the country that they live in. And. You know, some do, some do, some don't. I love the U.S.-Mexico rivalry and what it it it, uh, it has begun. I think Bill hit it on the head. We live in an incredibly unique country and culture with, you know, with the immigration that we have um, and with the cultures that we have. And, you know, now centuries of that, uh, you know, migration and all that, all that kind of stuff. And so... I, you know, I get it maybe more so than any place else in the world that this type of stuff is going to happen. I don't look at it as a, as a problem. Again, I look at it as a challenge. So I want people to go and cheer on whatever team it is. And if it's the, the team of their uh, of their birth, you know, if they were born in Mexico, um, that's that's fine. You know, that, that's that that's fine. But I also at some point and maybe it's just a moment I do hope that they feel some sense of pride in watching this team that represents the country that they are citizens of, uh, that they live in, that they work in, that has given them opportunity, that has given all of us all of those different things. And that's what I, where, I always came, where I always came from when it came to you know, stepping on the field with the national team, for example, is that I'm stepping on the field and representing this country that has given me so much. And I certainly don't take that for granted. I'm not saying anybody anybody else does, but it should be said that the uh, U.S. lost to Mexico when uh, when it came to the uh, the baseball the other day, and it hurts no matter what. Like I said, could be chess or tiddlywinks or <laughs> anything else. There, I don't want to lose to Mexico. I want to beat them in absolutely everything. That's the uh, that's the rival, and I recognize that if and when we play against Mexico, as I've told you before especially in certain areas that have high concentrations of Mexican-Americans, it's going to be an away game. And part of the challenge was always winning that over or shoving it in their face and saying, you know, we represent the United States, the country that you live in, and you might be cheering for the opposition here right now, but we're going to win. I'll never forget playing in the Rose Bowl right before the World Cup in 1994 against Mexico. And that's back when the Rose Bowl held 100,000 people. We went out there and it was basically 100,000 uh, Mexican-Americans 
and fans of the Mexican national team just going crazy. And we ended up beating them. And it just felt so good. I think I've told this story before. Nightline was doing a story on us and Ted Koppel was there. <laughs> and Ted Koppel met met us as the as the final whistle blew. And I was like, Ted, you know, we we, we got to get out of here because, you know, this we are the opposition. We are basically the away team. I say we the United States team. Now that has started to change and there's different places now that we uh, that we talk about it. But, you know, that's just a, a question of time. And it doesn't it doesn't bother me the way that uh, the way that it used to. And I think it's a, I think it's good for the region. I like the rivalry. And as I said before, I think it's only going to get bigger and better. And you mentioned it, Mossy, these, um, you know, they've given it a name, the All-State Continental Classico coming on April 19th in Glendale, Arizona. Because I told you, even though we're not qualifying for 2026 and so we don't have the hex or the octagonal, there are still going to be games <laughs> with, with Mexico. And they are going to mean something. And just, you know, they put a name on this thing. But it's U.S.-Mexico in Glendale, Arizona. And don't think for a second that there's not going to be a lot of fans there that are cheering for Mexico. So it's going to be a test and it's going to be wonderful. And I can't wait to watch it. And I hope we beat them. And I hope that all of the Mexican fans, whether they are coming from Mexico to cheer their team on or whether they are Mexican-Americans and citizens of the U.S. that are cheering their home country on, I hope they go away unhappy <laughs> and that the uh, red, white and blue wins. Anything on this, Mossy? No, that's it. All right, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, it's the end of our show, and I'll give you my one for the road. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Mossy, uh, the, the confirmation of the World Cup format for 2026 has finally come out. It was decided. They had a big old meeting over there with FIFA. So we come to find out now that there are going to be 48 teams, and that was nothing new. But there was talk about having groups of three. And I know you made your point and I made my point. I told you about talking to Johnny Infantino when we were in uh, Paris for the FIFA Awards. And he had asked me about that. And I emphatically said, we cannot have groups of three. It has to be groups of four. Because I do think that it fundamentally changes the strategy and the historic strategy. I mean, now we're talking about you know decades and decades of group play with four teams going to three. So... He obviously listened to me and uh, we come to find out 48 teams, 12 groups of four. Uh, So what ends up happening is the top two teams in each of the groups automatically qualify. And then the best third place, best eight third place teams also qualify. What this does is means means that in a a new perspective, there is a new round now, a new layer. Usually it's seven games uh, to uh, to win a World Cup. You don't have to win all of them, but there are seven games uh, to win a World Cup. Now we are going to eight because there is a round of 32. And that's the the new the new wrinkle. Now, this potentially could throw some um, statistics out of whack because there's another opportunity for people to score and do all that kind of stuff. But I think that's 
that's a small price to pay for keeping the uh, the groups of four. Keep in mind that in the past, we have also had groups of four where best third place teams are coming out. As a matter of fact, back in 1994, the United States was the best third place team in our group, which is how we actually got out of our group and continued on to the round of 16 back then. Um, we, uh, we come to find out that uh, there's going to be 104 total matches. Now, we saw in this last World Cup days where they had four games. Uh, you know, who knows how many games there are going to be each and every day. The more, the better, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of covering it. But I think regardless, uh, but certainly in this structure here, this is setting up to be a seminal moment. This is setting up to be one of the great World Cups. Bigger isn't always better. I, I get that. But I do think that a World Cup in the United States, which is ultimately what it is, with our friends to North and Canada and our friends to the South Mexico, it's designed to be big. It's designed to be super. It's designed to be American. And so having the biggest World Cup in history with the most games, um, I think is fitting for a World Cup that I think is going to live long in the memory. It's going to make plenty of money, but I think it's going to, like I said, be a seminal moment in American soccer history. And the structure that has come out, I think, lends itself to something just beautifully big, beautifully arrogant in the best sense of the word, and one that is unable to be forgotten and will never be forgotten. Mossy, anything on the uh, the structure here? Still don't love the 48 teams, but I will grant you 12 groups of four is not as bad as 16 groups of three. So this is an improvement. Okay. Well, Mossy has given it the seal, the, you know, this the seal of approval. I mean, as much as he possibly can, but he, you know, he doesn't like the 48 teams. Um, all right. Anything before we go, Moss? Uh, I am headed to Vegas this weekend. I am flying there on Friday morning. And to prepare for this trip, I watched the Netflix documentary about the missing Malaysian flight that you recommended. Oh, yes. So I am now hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping the U.S. government doesn't shoot down this plane the way they did the Malaysian one oh, nine years ago. Oh, my goodness, because Mossy. You're going to be just is, fine. What's your, uh, what's your game of choice, Mossy, when you go that, there to uh, Vegas? I'll just say that's the theory I've landed on, by the way. We'll, we'll need to talk about that documentary at a different time because I was absolutely riveted by it. But that, that American theory is the one I've landed on. Oh, okay. Hey, uh, what's your uh, what's your game of choice there when you go to uh, uh, Vegas? What do, what do you play? I might play some blackjack. Oh, really? Where are you staying? You know, I'm staying at the Win. Ooh, nice. Uh, is it? Uh, can you tell us why you're going there? Uh, just with some friends. Uh, just kind of a fun trip. It it was going to be uh, to watch the uh, NCAA tournament, but Michigan sadly did not make it. So I now have little interest in said tournament. So I'm going to try to seek enjoyment in other ways. Well, I mean, that might have been, uh, you know, a surprise to some. But what really was the, you know, the just ridiculousness of it was that Rutgers didn't make the tournament uh, either. So we're going to have to settle for the uh, the NIT. Well, listen, Mossy, have a wonderful time in Vegas. I hope you win a lot of money. I hope you have a wonderful uh, time with your uh, friends. I hope you come home safely. <laughs> and uh, we will do this uh, show again uh, next week. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Uh, thanks to, like I said, all the well wishes. Um, uh, everything's fine. And we're uh, moving along. And uh, I'm having a... Uh, you know, an interesting time uh, rehabbing, but it's really nice that uh, that everybody reached out 
uh, whether it's leaving messages or you know, sending me texts or you know on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. That's very, uh, very, uh, very cool of you and very. I appreciate it a, a, a whole lot. I hopefully, uh, if all goes as planned, I'm going to uh, attempt to come into the studio next week for our recordings and uh, actually get back out there into into public. I have a really cool cane now that uh, I can use. I don't necessarily need to use it, but it's much more kind of a, a, a prop. So maybe I'll show that when I come into the studio. Um, thanks, like I said, for reviewing and rating and subscribing and doing all the things that you do. We will talk to you again next week on the State of the Union podcast. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.